0: Good evening. Thank you for joining us for class tonight. This is uh, Relational Theology number 5, and uh, glad to be with you. Actually, no, I'm not. In fact, just the opposite. I decided I've had enough of this. I'm not going to do this class, so we won't have class tonight. April Fool's. (laughs) That was my wife's joke, so I thought we'd throw that in there just for fun. Oh, my gosh. It is April Fool's Day. (laughs) Okay, back to relational theology number five. As uh, you're aware, if you've been following us, we're talking about God restoring his original plan that was lost at the fall. It's a progressive revelation of himself and his plan dealing with relationship and rulership. I just realized there's just so much in the word that in a very real sense, we're only looking at a big picture outline trying to uh, build that under-the-water part of the uh, iceberg that most people aren't aware of, the subconscious part, uh, that then will allow us to answer the questions that we have later on. So we're going to get to that, but we're still building the foundation. So back to Abraham. God's covenant with Abraham, we talked a couple weeks ago, was really that he was going to make a nation. Uh, but also in a much bigger picture it showed the scope of God's plan that through Abraham God was going to bless all the nations it says in you and all the families of the earth will be blessed so God's scope was that it would include everybody though so he started with Abraham and chose a nation from this background of rebelliousness and and sin God, chose a person that became a nation that he could reveal himself to as a type of the kingdom and what he was restoring in Jesus, which we will see later on. But before we uh, go on, I want to go back to Genesis 22. And here we see uh, the story of God asking Abraham to take his son up to the mountain that he told him where to go. Uh, and so he obeyed and he went to the the mountain that God had told him and not understanding what was gonna happen, except that God had asked him to offer his son. Uh, when he got there, the angel stopped him, as you know the story, and uh, God had provided a ram in the thicket. And so Abraham went and got the ram and offered it as a burnt offering. And then he said, Call the name of the place the Lord will provide, or Jehovah Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you, multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Just wanted to point out that God reveals himself here in setting up this whole thing as a provider. He's the one who will provide. God will provide. Uh, In partnership with him and obedience to his direction, he provides. Now that's different than just recognizing that God all blessings come from him. When our gardens grow, when the farmers produce food, all of it is a blessing from God. But there's a bigger thing here. And I think that is that he's establishing something that when we're, when we're in partnership with him and obedience to his direction, we can count on him to provide. Someone once said, where God guides, he provides. There's something of recognizing as I live in partnership with him, his provision. Uh, When Mary and I lived in Denver, Colorado, we had gone through a leadership change in the church that we were part of, and my salary went to the new leader, and it became very evident in a short time that there wasn't enough money for two salaries. And so uh, it got to a point where we had no salary from the church, and uh, after three months of having no salary from the church... Uh, in which time God always provided some other way. But in that three months, we began to pray, okay, God, are you trying to get our attention? We knew that God had always been faithful in his provision to us. Now we weren't seeing that in the same way. Knowing that God hasn't changed, the question is, God, are you trying to get our attention that we need to look for a different mountain, that you're leading us to a different place. And so what I want to point out to you is that The means he uses to provide may change, but he still remains the source. He can always use other means. The story where he uses a bird to bring bread to one of the prophets. Uh, He multiplies bread and fish. Or another story, he multiplies the oil in a container. God can do all those but he can also just find us other means. So I want to encourage you in this season to realize that the Lord will provide is still God's covenant. He's still the provider and to not get your eyes fixed on the means that he has been using, but to get your eyes fixed on the source. Let me say this, the idea of progressive revelation is that each new revelation or covenant adds to the previous. God's revealing himself in a progressive way. It doesn't remove it. And so when God shows himself to be the provider, he's still the provider. And so we see a growing revelation of God, a growing revelation of his plan For mankind, and so I just just want to encourage you with that once again. He's still the Lord who will provide. Yes, that's good. Back to uh, Moses, Israel, we see the uh, restoration of both relationship and rulership. Relationship being God dwelling among them, which is signified by the tabernacle. When he says, I will make my dwelling among you and rulership is them dwelling in the land prosperously. And I want you to understand that when God gives in this whole context, commands, sacrifices, feasts, they all tie living in the land and relationship with God together. It's like the intertwined cords of a single cable or rope relationship and rulership are intertwined. And so we see commands about re- relating to God and commands about living in the land and, and how to get along with other people. And that uh, they deal with both. The commands and the sacrifices and, and the feast deal with both of those things. And so we just need to be aware of that. For instance, the Ten Commandments, as is Originally listed in Exodus 19, if you look at it, you see the first five have to do with how we relate to God, and the next five have how we relate to other people. We're not to have any other gods, but then later on, we're not to kill people or steal. That's not so that God likes us. It's This is how you get along in the land, so you understand that this relationship and rulership is intertwined. The commandments that God gives, the, the feasts and the, the sacrifices weren't designed to make people righteous, as we shared last week. They were designed to let them know that they aren't. And so there is something in that to see this is how we get along. But there's also something in that as a reminder of what God has done and to obey what what he says and what he's doing. Uh, For instance, while tithing provides for the priests, it also reminds that God is the source of all blessing. Everything we receive has come from him. And so he's reminding us that he's our provider as we give. Uh, The Sabbath was for rest, but it was also a reminder of the holiness of God to obey the Sabbath and keep it holy. And so it's a reminder of who God is. It's not just a legal thing. Uh, thing that God made up. But it's actually part of his overall plan. And so uh, when we look forward to the kingdom of God, we see that relationship and the advancing of the kingdom are, are intertwined. Relationship and rulership, the advancement of the kingdom or ministry, are intertwined. God never intended us to do it without him. It was never in his idea that we would have enough knowledge or enough understanding to be able to make all the decisions on our own without walking in relationship. In fact, any attempt to make Christianity just a system of beliefs or to encourage people to gain enough knowledge to make all the right choices leaves out relationships and puts us right back in the Garden of Eden with Eve. The temptation of the enemy is, I can decide what's right and wrong. You'll know right and wrong. So as I've said in the past, the idea of is the question isn't what would Jesus do? Let me get to know him and his plan enough that I can make decisions based on what he would do. The real question is Jesus, what do you want me to do? It's a relational question and we can't remove that for the basic premise. Otherwise we end up right back in the garden, trying to decide what's right and wrong based on our own knowledge our own experience, our own perspective, rather than on God. So the the encouragement is that as we walk in relationship, we understand that God has an eternal perspective and a uh, unsearchable wisdom far beyond ours. So with that in mind, let's take a look at some of the characteristics as God reveals himself in this section of scripture. Turn with me to uh, Leviticus chapter 11, where she's something about God revealing himself as holy. In this section, it's one of the the key uh, characteristics of God. It's probably one of the most uh, foundational, fundamental of revelations on which God shows us who he is. But the first is that he's holy. Revelation 11, I'm the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus. Sorry, Leviticus 11, 44 and 45. For I'm the Lord who brings you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Over in chapter 19 and verse 2. Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So he's basically saying there's something of holiness you need to grasp. Chapter 20 and verse 26. And you shall be holy to me, for I, am the Lord, am holy, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. And then 21 verse eight, therefore you shall consecrate him, for he offers the bread of of your God, he shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord who sanctify you, am holy. God's establishing something of his who he is, his character, his holiness, but somehow we see that that's also tied to fire to purity that the term holiness actually has two definitions. One is to be set apart, and the other is pure. And both apply to God. God is a separate order of being. He's set apart from mankind when he says he's holy, but he's also pure. And so when he calls the the nation to be set apart, to be holy, he's calling them to be set apart. I'm choosing this nation from all the other nations to be set apart for my purposes. But he ties that in with something of fire and he introduces this in the process of the the covenant that he makes with them. And uh, let me just run through a number of scriptures with you. But in Exodus 19 and verse 18, now Mount Sinai was com- was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. God descended on it in fire. Exodus 32. And verse 10 says, Now let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. And I'll make of you a great nation. This is when the people made the golden calf. 33. And verse 3, he says, Go up to land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way for your stiff-necked people. verse 5, The Lord said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are stiff-necked people. I could come up in your midst in one moment and consume you. There's something of God's holiness and this fire. But if we go on and look in Leviticus, I want to show you a number of these because one of the main themes that we'll see uh, impacts the Bible. Chapter 9 of Leviticus and verse 23 Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of God appeared to all the people and a fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering. So there's something of tying God's glory and fire together. And then, uh, sorry, in chapter 10, in verse 2 and 3, uh, this is when Nadab and Abihu had offered a profane fire. Verse two, so fire went out from the Lord and devoured them and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. Numbers chapter 11 verse one and when the people complained, it displeased the Lord it displeased the Lord for the Lord heard it and his anger was aroused. so the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. And chapter 16 of numbers and verse 35 we see something again. And a fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men uh, and 50, the 250 men who were offering incense. So something about God's holiness, his glory and fire. Turn with me over to Deuteronomy next book. Yeah, we're going to go through the whole Bible with this. No, we're not almost Deuteronomy chapter four verse 11 and 12. Then you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain and the mountain burned with fire to the midst of heaven with darkness cloud and thick darkness. And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but you saw no form. You only heard a voice. God's establishing something of his holiness and his glory and something of fire associated with that. For that which is unholy. We'll get to that in a moment. But uh, verse 24, And the Lord your God is a consuming fire. A jealous God. So he's actually saying this holy God is a consuming fire. Uh, verse, uh, sorry, verse 36, Out of heaven he lets you hear his voice that he might instruct you. On earth he showed you his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. So God's speaking to them some, a covenant and some commandments, but it's tied in with this sense of holiness and recognizing who God is. Chapter five and verse 22, the words with the Lord spoke to all your assembly in the mountain from the midst of the fire, the cloud, thick darkness and a loud voice. And he he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And then one more over in chapter 9. And verse 33. Actually, verse 3. Therefore, understand today, the Lord your God is he who goes before you as a consuming fire. So this is, he'll destroy their enemies, but he is this consuming fire That is going to have uh, an impact for those who are against Him. So, what I want you to to grasp here begin to get a picture of that God, in His holiness, is setting up an understanding that sin and rebellion has a consequence. There are all these people who rebelled against God, they decided they would do what was right in their own eyes. They rebelled against God and this holy God, whose glory is then revealed, is seen as a consuming fire. Now that's a, there's a bigger theme throughout all of the, the Bible along the same thing, and it's tied in with the day of the Lord. There is something that is in the the prophets. Many of the prophets talk about the day of the Lord, a day of God's judgment or a day of God's glory or something happening that separates the holy from the unholy. Uh, In Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, Behold, the day is coming. Whenever it says the day, it's referring to this bigger theme that you'll see throughout all the prophets, the day of the Lord, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. So there's this bigger picture. You see it throughout many of the the prophets. You see something about the day of the Lord in uh, Obadiah which is back uh, just before Jonah and just after Amos. Uh, And Obadiah is a single chapter, but verse 15 says, For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near, as you have done it shall be done to you. So there's something of this judgment of God that comes on the nations on this day of the Lord. Amos calls it a great and terrible judgment There's something great about it as God's glory is revealed, but there's also something terrible about it, which comes about when God's glory is revealed and those who are sinful begin to, to face the consequences of that. Back over in 2 Peter and in chapter 3, from verse seven, we see something of this in a conclusion. And the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Okay, the context he's talking about is, uh, scoffers come in the day, walking according to the lesson, saying, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, verse 4, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water. And in the words, God created the heavens, he's saying, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. So he's talking about the flood. So talk about creation and the flood. And he said, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire. So God's never going to destroy the world again with a flood. That was a covenant with Noah. But we see there's something of this fire. The, the world is reserved for fire until the day of de- judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is, is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. Rest assured, there is this day that's coming as a thief of the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking forward for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and elements will melt with fervent heat. There seems to be something of this day of the Lord which is a expression of God's holiness of God's glory being revealed in fact if you're with me turn over back two books to pass James to Hebrews and Hebrews from verse 25 of chapter 12 so see that you do not do not refuse him who speaks for if you did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth How much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven? We're going to come back to him speaking in a moment. But whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things which are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken... Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Hmm. So he's referring back to this point of the shaking being this, this uh, day of the Lord that comes and consumes, shakes everything, removes everything that can be shaken, removes everything that's, that's not built. In uh, Corinthians talks about those things being built being precious stone and not wood and stubble that will be consumed with fire. And so there is a sense of seeing God's eternity. There's a sense of walking with Him to see things removed. 1 Timothy 6.16 calls God... A, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, too fast. Calls He who dwells in unapproachable light. And so what I want to present to you This concept, different than what we might think, is could it be that there is a time coming when God's glory and holiness is totally revealed? When he who is consuming fire, when he who is unapproachable light is revealed in totality and those with sin end up being consumed? What's he consuming? He's consuming the impurity. Malachi says he comes as a refiner's fire. Malachi 3 1. So there's something of God's glory that doesn't allow these things in his presence. Could that be what this is about? Could that be the culmination of the ages? Could that be those who are sinful? end up being consumed, but because they're eternal beings and because there's nowhere they can escape from his presence, the revelation of his glory is actually consuming. Maybe, could it be that hell isn't a place, but it's actually the glory of God being revealed and those who are not walking in relationship being consumed and there's no place to escape. If that's the reality of the universe, God is holy, then what we'd see is that God doesn't send people to hell. He's doing everything to take away the sin that would separate us and cause us to be consumed. And so our concept of God as an angry, judgmental person is, can be totally wrong. God just knows the reality of the universe. Now, if I have a little child, and we're standing near a cliff, and my child gets close to the cliff, he might not know the reality of the universe. He doesn't know that if he gets over and falls off the cliff, he's gonna fall down and die if it's 200 feet high. But I do. And so I'm doing everything I can to stop him from going off the cliff. He's running toward the cliff. I'm running after him because I know the reality of the universe. No matter how much I don't want gravity to affect him, it still will. If the reality of the universe is that God is holy and sin will not exist in his presence, then rather than him being angry and sending us to hell, I'm not pushing my son off the cliff. I'm doing everything I can to stop him from going because he doesn't know. Just a different way of looking at it. God reveals himself in the sense of holiness and it's tied in with this thing of fire and the day of the Lord. Bigger thing that you can can take a look at, you can examine throughout all of Scripture. Sometimes, like I said at the beginning, we have filters that make us interpret the Bible from what we've heard in the past, from the filters that we have, rather than from the reality of how God's revealed himself. And so if we're asking the Holy Spirit to show us, what are the filters that I have? I'm convinced that there's a whole lot of people with Calvinistic filters. And a Calvinistic filter basically doesn't recognize the conflict between God and the devil, doesn't recognize this world being under the influence of the evil one. So part of Calvin's belief, and we'll get to this later on, was basically that everything that happens is God. And uh, he had a certain philosophical viewpoint and that colored how he looked at the scriptures. And if you study him, it was more philosophy than it was scripture. But that's affected a whole lot of Christianity. And so we often have this idea that something that's happening has to be, God has to be behind it. Rather than, no, this is a consequence of a fallen world. This is a consequence of the devil who's at, at work here. Uh, this is a consequence of a deteriorating image of God and relationship that the world is actually under the influence of the evil one. Now, from that, God's called out a nation and has called out us, but we have to be careful that we don't see what's happening in the world as God's plan. This was never God's plan. In fact, God's been working hard to redeem it. Mm, good. And so we can't blame God when we see things happening. And sometimes that filter causes us to have a certain perspective. And and we're not aware. The problem with filters is that we're often blind to them. They're the part under the water of the iceberg. They're the subconscious part that has affected us. And we don't recognize that we have this. And so we often have this expectation. Many people are looking at things that are happening as God's judgment on the world. And the reality is that there will be a day of judgment and the whole world will be consumed. We haven't got to that point yet. God's still moving in grace and goodness trying to redeem people. Yes. And so that's, that's the issue that we need to realize. And, and don't look for judgment. Look for expressions of grace.
1: Look for God's
0: heart reaching out to people. Uh, especially in this day and age. Your neighbor, if they get coronavirus, is not the judgment of God on them. Okay? It is the product of a fallen world. Uh, it's Unfortunately, we live in a world that is fallen. We live in a world that is under the influence of the evil one. We live with a whole lot of people and even leaders who have submitting themselves to the, uh, the enemy, the evil one, and are just making really, really dumb choices. There will be a day of judgment. We'll talk more about that later on, as we get to, to answering some of the questions we have and can go more in depth. Uh, but I just want to help you in these days. God's still God of grace, even though he revealed himself as a holy God we'll see later on, he adds to that foundation that he's loving and gracious. But if you don't understand holiness, it's hard to understand God's love and grace. If you don't understand God's purity, if you don't understand that sin can't exist in in his presence when his glory is revealed, then we think that love should be God just kind of waves his hand like a magic wand and says, oh, there's no sin here. Just the opposite, there is sin here. It's not a matter of where God sees it; it's a matter of there is sin. That's just the reality of the universe, and there will be an inability to stand in His presence. So, let's let's recognize that while that God reveals that, He then reveals Himself later on as a loving God who actually paid the penalty for our sin, who actually took our sin away. We're going to see the great thing about the new covenant is that not only did he forgive us our sin, but he took it away from us so that we can actually be the righteousness of God. That's what uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 5 says. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He took it away. He became not only the sacrificial lamb, but the scapegoat. He paid the penalty. His blood was the sacrifice for the the sin that we had committed that we deserved the penalty for, but then not only was he the sacrifice, he was the scapegoat. Our sin was placed upon him, and he carried it away so that we could become the righteousness of God. I'm getting ahead of myself for that. Sorry about that. I'm quite excited about this. Uh, But... Heard of some more. God's God's introducing something of His holiness. And we have to understand that if we're going to really understand His love and mercy. Grace is not ignoring sin. Grace is actually Him taking the penalty for us. Okay, one other, actually two other points I want to make before we finish. Back to... Uh, the Old Testament, back to Exodus. And I want you to see something of, I'm sure you saw it as we've gone through here, but I want you to see it again. And that is that the key that God presents over and over here is that of hearing Him, hearing God. He makes it a point here where you're going to see just now but I think it's one of the keys to kingdom advancement. God establishes it with the nation of Israel, and he builds on that later on. But we're going to see how important it is. But let me just go back to uh, Exodus and 19. Uh, and verse 19, The blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder. This is when they're going uh, around the mountain. God's going to give them the uh, Ten Commandments. But he speaks to them first. Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. God actually called all the people so that they could hear God speaking. Jump over with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6, just for the sake of time. I'm still going to read a number of scriptures, but not through all of the Old Testament. Sorry, chapter 4. And from verse 10. This is Deuteronomy, Moses recounting what had happened in the covenant and uh, reminding them, and he says, especially concerning the day you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb, when God said to me, gather the people to me, and I will let them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach his children. In verse 12, And the Lord spoke to me out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. You only heard a voice. Verse 33, Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and live? Verse 36, Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might instruct you on earth. He showed you his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire this is God speaking to them before he actually writes the words down on the the tablet of stone we if you look at uh, the movie of the ten commandments you think that Moses only got these commandments and the people didn't know what they were they actually heard it all and agreed to it before it was written down God actually spoke to them Chapter five, verse four, and the Lord talked with you face to face on the mountain from the midst of the fire. God made a covenant with us, verse two. Did not make a covenant with our fathers, but with us who are here today. He made this covenant and spoke to you on the mountain. And verse 22, we read it earlier, 22 to 24. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly In the mountain from the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. So after he spoke it, he wrote it. So it was when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire that you came near to me, all the heads of your fathers. And you said, surely the Lord our God has shown us his glory, his greatness And we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God speaks with man, yet he still lives. Interesting that God spoke to them. I I don't know how often I'd read the Bible till I actually got an understanding that he didn't just write this down on tablets and give it to Moses and Moses told them what God said. They actually all heard God's voice and he says it over and over again. They heard him speak. This is the Old Covenant. This is God establishing something of this intertwining of relationship and rulership, walking together. But turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8 from verse 1. I want to read 1 to 4. It says, Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord for to your fathers. So he's now talking about rulership part of it. These commandments are about rulership. He makes it very clear that you might possess the land. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, which is interesting because manna means, what is this? We don't know. He humbled you. He allowed you to hunger and fed you that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In essence, God led you 40 years in the wilderness to make you know that you live by hearing what God says. It's not by the natural, it's by something spiritual. Only place I found in the Bible where he makes them know something. 40 years with one goal, to make you know that you live by hearing his voice. This is a type of the kingdom of God. This is an example that will lead us in progressive revelation into the point that every one of us has the privilege of partnering with God and hearing his voice. Jesus said in John 5.19, I do nothing except I hear the Father say. Verse 5.30, John 5.30, or see the Father doing. Jesus only did what he heard the Father saying and saw the Father doing. This carries through... Into the kingdom. So you need to understand, God's making it very clear here that rulership, impact, living in the land prosperously, and relationship are woven together, they're tied together. That relationship with God is an integral part. Of kingdom and advancement or ministry. In other words, when we get to the New Testament, we'll see that ministry flows from intimacy with God, not just knowledge. Ministry flows from intimacy with God. Hearing His voice, walking in relationship with Him. It doesn't flow from the knowledge that we gain. If I go to university and study or seminary and I get enough knowledge of the Bible, I can then decide how to do ministry. We can't. We need the leading of the Holy Spirit. We need the empowering of the Holy Spirit. We need to do... If anyone could have done that, Jesus could have, and he said he did nothing except what he heard the Father saying and saw the Father doing. He was birth of the Spirit and led by the Spirit in all that he did. And so we're seeing way back here in this covenant that God makes with Israel that he's tying these two things together. Intimacy with him, relationship with him and living prosperously in the land, rulership. How we do that is tied together. We have to hear his voice. So I want to encourage you in that. It's there and we're going to see how it grows in maturity if you see this revelation almost as a plant, it's growing and beginning to bear fruit and that fruit gets and We're gonna see that into the, uh, the new covenant uh, with Jesus in just a, a short while. But it's important to see that those are tied together. And then one last point I wanna make before I leave is in Deuteronomy chapter seven. Another revelation of who God is. Verse nine says, therefore, know that the Lord, your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. Mm -hmm. God reveals himself as a covenant keeping faithful God that the faithfulness of God is not about provision as much as is about being faithful to the covenant. When I made a vow to be faithful to my wife when we got married, it wasn't just that I would provide for her, but that I would uphold that covenant that we made. I would uphold that and I would be faithful to that. Irregardless of good, bad, how I felt, there's something, and God reveals himself in this as a faithful God who keeps covenant. I mean, that's such an amazing thing. It, it is with Israel, but when we get to the New Testament, we see that every one of us is in that covenant with him. And he's faithful to us. He's faithful to me. In the same covenant, he's still the same covenant-keeping God. He's still the f- same faithful God, and we're going to see how that's expressed when we get to the, the New Testament, the new covenant. But God reveals himself, and he lays his foundation, just so we know that he's faithful. He chose covenants as a way of revealing himself. He could have chose just rules, but he chose these covenants that he initiates and he binds himself to, he makes a promise, he swears by himself he's going to do something. Sometimes there is some responsibility on our part, but we often always get the better end of the deal. But then, in that, he wants to make it very clear to us that he's faithful. In Timothy, it says, even when we're faithless, he remains faithful. Even when I have no faith, even when doubt assails me, he is still faithful because he's a covenant-keeping God. And we're going to see the importance of that when we get to the New Testament. So I want to leave you with that. Some of the revelations of God in and around. Obviously, there is this greater covenant he makes with Israel. We call it the Mosaic Covenant, but it wasn't actually with Moses. It was with the nation. Uh, And he makes this covenant. And around it, there's a whole lot that, uh, that you can be reading in here. There's so much that you can see of God's revelation of himself. If you understand the big picture, we can't pull it out of context and make it something that it isn't, but we can see some of God's progressive revelation. So I want to encourage you with that. I want to encourage you with what we started with at the very beginning. Read the Bible. Read all of the stuff around it see it in the in the context we're going to be talking about the uh, davidic covenant uh in the the next session that we have together begin to read that we've got story of uh how he responds to the people when they decide that they want a king and what that that tells and then you and you'll see that uh, i told you in the very very beginning when there was i don't have it in front of me so i can't tell you what the Assignment would be, uh, but you can go back and take a look at that in the very first first uh, and second Samuel, first, first yeah. and second Kings. Yeah, as Mary saying, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, Chronicles. Reading through there, see the the bigger picture of uh, again a kingdom, which we'll we'll get to next week. Lord, we just thank you for your word. Thank you that you've revealed yourself to us. Lord, we realize that we want to obey everything you're saying, but we also want to walk in obedience to everything you've said. We realize that the word that we have, though it's written down, it was spoken. You spoke, and you're still speaking. And so we thank you, God, that you're still a God of revelation. Holy Spirit, you lead us into truth. Help us to see, to comprehend, to see who you are in, in reality. Lord, we just ask that you would remove uh, filters that have caused us to look at you in a way that for some reason it's picked up from philosophy or from religion or from uh, different things that have caused us to see you as different than you are and different than you've uh, revealed yourself to be. We say, Holy Spirit, help us. Open up our eyes, open up our mind. Lord, we want to know you. We want to know you more. We don't just want to know about you. We want to know you. We want to walk in intimacy with you. Realize that it was A.W. Tozer who said, the most important thing about us is what we think of when we think of God. Because we move toward that image. Lord, we want to think of you rightly. We want to have a right understanding so not only are we moving towards you in intimacy, but we're presenting you accurately and correctly to the world around us. Thank you that you're a faithful God. We trust you in Jesus name. Amen. 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 Wonderful, thanks for being with us. Hope you're uh, finding this helpful and that We'll keep building on the foundations of the word as we go forward. God bless you. Bye now.